podcast on this Monday evening. Uh, with me tonight, as always, we have my co-host, Peter Ray Allison. Good evening, everyone. And it is our great privilege, our special guest tonight is Dacre Stoker. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for having me with you tonight. My pleasure. So, um, some of you may recognize <laughs> the second name. Um, One or two. <laughs> so... I'm going to let Digger, I'm going to let you introduce yourself uh, for those of you to be fair, right? When Pete, when when Pete sort of said we're we're having you on, I was just like that sounds so familiar, and I didn't think anything of it, and then and then it all clicked in, and I was like, oh my god! So uh, I'm going to let you just I'm going to let you um, introduce yourself, who you are, what you do for everybody. Well, we'll just start with, um, again, it's Dacre Stoker. I am fortunate to have been born into horror royalty. I'm the great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula. I have, for the last 15 years, devoted my life to research, his research and writing of Dracula and finding all sorts of things that uh, inspired him, motivated him to write not only Dracula, but his other books as well. In the process, I've been lucky to co-author with some, some great, talented writers, to have produced Dracula the Undead, international bestseller sequel to Dracula, and Dracul, a prequel to Dracula, uh, with J.D. Barker, and more recently, uh, actually involving Matt here, uh, a, a graphic novel, Dracula the Return. So I'm moving into, with the help of Chris McCauley and something we call the, uh, the Stokerverse, moving into a wide range of products that are all inspired by Bram Stoker's legacy, things surrounding his life, as I said, things that went into Dracula, things that didn't make it into Dracula, and some of his other novels as well. So that's a, that's my short story, gents, to get, get started tonight. <laughs> I am probably going to shock a few of our listeners. And admitting I've never read Dracula until a week ago because it was a story that becomes so, so ingrained in our culture. We all know it. We all know the story of Dracula because it's such a part of our society. And we've seen like so many, so many like films, and it's been. We all know it. It's one of those things. It's like a cultural touchstone for us. But I finally read it, and really, it's a fantastic story. It really is a brilliant story that's told through a series of like journal entries, letters, and so on. And I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't read it read it sooner. You know, Peter, I'm finding uh, or have found in the last fifteen years of this, many people say the same thing. Even though it's never been out of print, it's been published in over 30 languages all over the world, so on. A lot of people simply know the story organically. They understand, you know, through comics, through, you know, RPGs, all kinds of things. They know the story, but they don't know Bram Stoker's version of it, or they yeah. haven't had the time to sit down. Because it is a bit of a tough read. Um, you know, it's still, it's still in that 1897 tongue. The sentence structure is a little bit old-fashioned. It is written in this epistolary style, which in a way, and, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this, it challenges the reader to think. You're constantly having to think, oh, what's this character saying in this journal? What's this newspaper article saying? What's this diary mean? Because it's designed to make the reader think until about two thirds of the way through the story, when of course, one of the central characters, Mina Harker, puts it together for the band of heroes hey, we've got a vampire here. This is what Van Helsing is trying to tell us. Now we got to get on with trying to destroy this guy. So it is a story that's been around, but his writing of it has really not been, I guess for lack of a better term, exploited as well as it should be. 
Absolutely. I mean, um, it's because it, the, the story, te- the narrative of Dracula is very much from different perspectives. You have the element of an unreliable narrator and you've got their perspective, their own perceptions and how they perceive things and, and rationalise things. I mean, for example, like the, the blue flames, it's never Dracula gives his description of it. And you have um, Harker's response to it. But there's a lot of ambiguity behind it. And there's kind of like there's a surface reading. And there's also like the subtext beneath it and also like you know, what it could be. And I think it kind of comes from back a different time where st- the pacing of stories is much was much slower back then. It's much more deliberate and delivered. Where now where we're much living in kind of a hyper intense where kind of information is down is bombarded. And you know, reading has become like that. Dracula is a much more paced and deliberate story. I think you'd call it a slow burn if it yeah. was uh, described nowadays. You know, it's it's not. It, it, although you know, I've just did, done an annotated Dracula, and I'm working on another electronic Ooh. edition. I'll tell you about in a moment. But there are some chapters that end in cliffhangers, but not everyone does. And 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 having written these two modern, uh, let's let's say versions of Dracula, one a prequel, one a sequel. Uh, my co-author and I were told loud and clear from our agent who has experience obviously with getting this book to publishers, you have to leave people constantly hanging so they turn the page. We get, we're get we getting spoon-fed nowadays by watching streaming series that they want you to go from one show to the next to the next and, and not give up. Same thing in the books because we're trying to do that same thing. Back in the days, Bram had your attention because there wasn't many other things to do other than going to watch the theater. So his story was this slow burn, but I do want to deviate for a second. I know we can jump around this forever, but you mentioned the blue flame. I've, I've got a you know a cool story because I'm interested in all of these in, insertions into the story and where did they come from? Where did they possibly come from? And because Bram didn't write an autobiography, he was too busy a man, he was too humble a man, he was being busy being Henry Irving's theater manager and traveling around the, the world. So he, he didn't write an autobiography about him and Dracula, but he did give us some hints here and there uh, in a book he wrote called Personal Reminiscence of Henry Irving after Irving died about himself. And he also left us 124 pages of notes that reside in the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. And there's also a typescript. It's the last piece of material that Bram had typed and lots of corrections to it handed to his, his publisher. So from analyzing that, I've tried to figure out things like, where does the superstition of the blue frame come from? And this, this is what, not conclusive, but this is what I figured out, is that one of the books written by a Scottish author called Emily Gerard that Bram found in the London Library, and they actually have a- actual accurate records of all the books from the London Library, and Bram listed those books in the back of his notes. So it was almost like writing a university paper. He listed his resources. So we can go back to those and see what he, uh, what he was looking at. And he also gave one interview and one only one interview to a Jane Stoddard in, in the newspaper, the British Weekly, that he mentions this Emily Gerard book. So of course that got my attention and it does have a whole chapter on Transylvanian superstitions. Mm-hmm. And the similarities between Transylvanian superstitions and Irish folklore. So 
that was my start. I have been to Transylvania and the rest of Romania 12 times on research, on tours and so on. And on one of them, I actually followed Bram's notes, followed the trail. He left coordinates so, so that the end of the story, and since it's fresh in your mind, what he actually mentions in chapter 27, the 47th parallel, where the gypsies pulling the liter wagon guarding Count Dracula meet up with the band of heroes and they have this massive battle at the foot of the mountain where Castle Dracula is. I've been to that mountain now, Peter, and I've, I've hired a guide. He took the coordinates, he put them into GPS, and my son and I and some of my friends went there. And uh, we actually had a bit of a misadventure, which uh, if we want to get into it, we can. But yeah, long yeah, story. Yes, yes, yes misadventure. Yeah. all about the misadventures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't mind telling, but I'm not embarrassed to say. Well, oh, okay, so then here we go. So <laughs> uh, hiring this, this fellow was, was the right move, um, but he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't really as well-versed in the area as he led me to believe. We, <laughs> we, we hiked up through the forest, no trail, through clear-cut areas that when the clear cuts mean there used to be a forest there until loggers came along. And when they cut the trees, they don't always cut them flat. You've got, you know, aggressive looking spikes on the ground and it was wet and it was thick, heavy grass. And every time you came to one of these areas where a tree was, there's usually a hole and then a sharp thing at the bottom. So I mean, we felt like this was Vlad the Impaler country, to be honest, that one <laughs> one false move and one of us is going to be have to be evacuated out by a helicopter because we were too far away from any other thing. We got to the top in about three hours and I had seen images because a friend of mine, uh, Hans de Roos, who had been there before, took images of what it looked like. And guys, I'm not kidding. It had this rock face because it was a vo- a old volcano of that um, in the Game of Thrones, you know, where the, the big snow, the big ice castle is up yeah, in the yeah. north. Yeah, yeah. It, had that, it had that look. It was really imposing, but very cool. And it was obvious, okay, we'd reached this. But almost at the time we got up there and did sort of our big rocky salutes, you know, we've made it. <laughs> the fog rolls in. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and not only does that, you know, impede our, our, our vision – and the great scenery, but you know we know well enough in Dracula and other stories, especially around the ocean, that the fog is this symbol of the clammy hands of death. Those ghostly figures who are searching for a place to rest, and Bram describes that in Whitby. So it was a little eerie, it was a little spooky, but also it was like, oh my God, how are we gonna are we gonna be able to get down safely? And we also heard in the distance some some thunder rolling in. So it was like I had to make a quick decision. And we pulled out our paper map. Luckily, we had one and and realized that the best way to go and not go back down the steep hill through these scobs was to go around the cone of the volcano because our guide had been a high mountain weatherman living in these little shacks that relay information by computers down to, to television stations and so on. So he knew there was one up there, but we realized it would be longer but safer to go there. And we decided as a group, we, we, that's what we've got to do. It's just not safe with no visibility and, and, and thunder, which 
when you're on mountains, thunder means lightning, lightning means electricity, which means anybody got metal on them is going to die. So we, we, it took us three hours to get up. It took us four more hours Ooh. to get to the road, which then we walked along for a mile to find the, this high you know, weather station. And when we got there, we were soaked. It was dark. We realized we were lucky to find a building. And out comes this grumpy weatherman that starts tearing a strip out of our guide. Like, what the heck are you doing here? What are you bringing these tourists for? This is ridiculous. You're putting them at risk. And the guide, like, slow down, slow down. And all in Romanian, we, we were told this later, listen, we, we've got some very special people here. They're on the quest to find the fictional castle Dracula. And we found it. And, and you're actually on it. Oh, well, come on in. This is it's wonderful. <laughs> come and get warm. This is, and he said, this is your lucky day because I have a friend coming up probably in the next half an hour with his Jeep to bring me some supplies. And sure enough, we got in, took off our wet clothes, you know, just dried off a bit. And up comes this beat up old Jeep with two guys in it. And they have bread, cheese, smoked pork fat, and some meat, like salami meat. And then these big water bottles full of clear liquid and by I know what it was. It wasn't water. It's something called Olinka, which is a plum brandy. Oh, okay. And oh. when, yeah. So when the when the weatherman and our guide explained to the, to these guys who the guests are, the party began. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it and this brandy, which I have suffered through before, our guide said, "Guys, you cannot refuse this. They're going to drive you down." But first, we have to drink and be polite and eat this stuff and drink. But the guide who has his own car at the bottom said, and I can't drink, you know, because if I ever get caught drinking and driving, you lose your license. And we had one other guy with us who was a recovering alcoholic. He was actually a, a former Navy SEAL. Right. He said, I can't drink either. I'll just touch it to my lips. And so me, my son and this other fellow had to keep drinking. And we just got absolutely hammered. <laughs> But it was the only way to, you know, keep in good graces. But also it was a way to make this horrible smoked pig fat go down. It was just disgusting. But, you know, the bread was OK. The cheese was was nice. But so. And this was you get all to my, on the location of Castle Dracula. Yes. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and, and Matt, we're so it's so Harker-esque. We are feeling we've got thunder and lightning going on outside. <laughs> This is like, you know, Jonathan Harker's first meal with Count Dracula. And he brings them, but I don't eat and I don't drink wine. And here we are having to do this. <laughs> Amazing. And, oh, and wow. everything is obviously being translated. And I'm trying to hold up my end while I'm getting, well, I am a little drunk at this point. I'm saying, <laughs> okay, guys, tell me about the superstitions around here. And I've always wanted to know about the blue flame. And the look on the face of the driver of this car who's in his sort of 60s and this other man that he was with in his 70s, this kind of gnarly old guy, <laughs> changed at that point when he was translated. And I thought, oh, gosh, did I say something <laughs> wrong? Have I, have I gone over, you know, extended my welcome? But no, they engaged on this. And they started telling. And, of course, I could see, you know, I get pretty good at looking at people's faces and trying to read what they're, they're getting excited and he points at the old guy and he points. It turns out that where we are is 
the cone of an old volcano. And when it blew a million years ago, it exposed a massive amount of sulfur deposits. Ah. And during Ceausescu's reign of, of you know, terror and, and government, <laughs> communist government in Romania, he exploited the sulfur, which was very profitable, in a massive open pit mine. And obviously this triggered something to me because about a week before coming on this trip, I'd seen a special on television about sort of very, um, let's say unsophisticated sulfur mining in Chile and Peru, where men would, would have these cloth masks yeah. over their face and climb down the ladders, breaking these rocks with these hammers and putting these yellow chunks into these big uh, like reed baskets on their shoulders, climbing up the ladders and dumping them when they get to the top. No, no machines or anything. But you would see spontaneous combustion going on with the intense heat on the walls of the volcano that they'd come out of. And guess what? The flame burned blue. So I, that's what I was trying to ask. Is this a possibility? And the guys just said, absolutely. This is, we have forest fires triggered by lightning strikes. And when we do, rocks, not even in the sulfur mine, because it, the sulfur is not just restricted to the mine. It's all over the place. Yeah, yeah. These, the rocks burn blue. And I said, well, how does that get turned into superstition? I said, is there buried treasure like in Dracula? And they looked at me and said, well, first of all, <laughs> the sulfur is the treasure. It's very valuable. And those, in those days, it was a component of gunpowder. Of course, yeah, yeah, of course. And, and, yeah. And he who had the gunpowder had the power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and the old man said, and you can't tell anybody this, but I'm telling you and your listeners, we also have gold up here. And it's well, it's a well-known fact that the Carpathian Mountains have a lot of rich gold deposits. As a matter of fact, it was a Canadian company, and, and it's been trying to get permits. And you know, certain corruptions going on in the government, but all the Greenpeace people say, "Don't you don't let them do this? They're going to ruin your environment." So it, it, I, I'm not spilling the beans on the gold, but guys, it seems that I sort of uncovered a potential origin of this this supernatural tale that Brand picked up from Emily Gerard but then was actually had real physical beginnings. And it was only because of my mishap and misadventure. And we did get home. Okay. Albeit, you know, six hours later than we thought. That's and what was the hangover like? I love that. I love stuff like it, that. It wasn't good. It, <laughs> you know, a sweet hangover is so much worse than a dry one. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Well, yeah. Finding the, uh, the origins of basically myth. Um, uh, it, yeah, that that blows my mind. That's that's amazing. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, I'm very much a pragmatist. I'm like a science and te technology journalist, so I come from a very kind of rationalist background. I'm an engineer by trade. Um, I studied engineering at university, and I was going to ask you, but what would do that? And what you described, yeah, of course, sulfur. It makes perfect sense because it establishes. Yeah, yeah, and it's also fitting that Castle Dracula would be on. Uh, a dormant volcano of uh, immense power. What well, it, get, it gets be it gets better, Peter. Oh, <laughs> it gets better. Oh, okay. okay. Why why Bram Stoker let put it on an extinct volcano is because I was able to analyze the one 
Dracula TypeScript that exists in the world, the Paul oh. Allen Foundation. Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, he died a few years ago. He collected all kinds of interesting things. And when J.D. Barker and I basically talked our way into a trip to Seattle to analyze the Dracula TypeScript, in return for giving one of my lectures to all their employees, we jumped at it. Because there's a couple of sort of urban legends around this TypeScript. And one of them is that it starts at page 102. So if it starts mm -hmm. at page 102, what's missing in the 101 pages? Yeah. And I had a pretty good idea that Dracula's Guest, the story that was published by Bram's widow two years after he died, yes. was a part of it, all right? But the only way to notice this and knowing how Bram was, and if it was still a part of the TypeScript very late in the process of having it typed and then published, Bram did, in fact, go through the rest of the manuscript and cross out four specific passages that dealt with things that happened in Dracula's Guest that was edited out. So if, if you've got something throughout the rest of your novel that's referring to what this Jonathan Harker character was doing in Munich on that day, you've got to go take it out because it doesn't yeah. make sense. So... That's what JD and I needed because we actually ended up writing our prequel to start, excuse me, to end where Bram originally planned to start Dracula. Oh, nice. So now that you've read Dracula, if you haven't done it, go read Dracula's Guest. Yeah. I'll tell, I'll tell this to you and all your listeners. A guy that I know very well. And everything Bram Stoker has written and been published is now public domain. Bramstoker.org, a free website. Everything you can download, you can read it in text, you can read it in PDF, you can read all his short stories, all his novels. So go there, Bramstoker.org, read Dracula's Guest, and you'll realize this is Jonathan Harker. He's on his way to Transylvania. He had to stop in Munich for the night because of train schedules, and he had quite an interesting misadventure. But that's not why I'm telling you this. What I'm telling you is the other cool thing, and I've got theories on, because I've reconstructed the other chapters, what really jumped out is something I'd heard about, but I wanted to verify. Right after the Band of Heroes has their battle with Dracula just beyond the 47th parallel at the foot of the mountains, and Quincy Morris jumps on the liter wagon along with Jonathan Harker, and they rip the top off the crate and then Quincy Morris stabs the Count with his Bowie knife. And Harker slits the throat of the Count, doesn't decapitate. The Count crumbles into dust and escapes. Is it an escape? Is it death? What is it? And the reason it's ambiguous is that obviously there was no wooden stake involved, was there? Yeah. It was a Bowie knife. And it wasn't totally decapitated with garlic inserted into the body cavity. Like Van Helsing said, this is how we have to kill Lucy. So that's ambiguous. But right after that happened, what was edited out of the TypeScript is a whole page. And it's all right there, just crossed out of volcanic eruption. Oh, further tying into Jacqueline's... Further tying into yeah. why it is important for Bram Stoker 
to have found a volcano in that area. He, he did it through good research. Yeah. And he wrote down the coordinates. He And he didn't name the mountain, but the mountain is Mount Isveril in the Kalamani National Park. And it's right next to the Borgo Pass, just like every, I mean, and that's not a made up name. Yeah. Next to Bukovina. So Bram had to place everything in, re, in a real place that we could come back and verify to give doubt if this story is real or not. And by having a volcanic eruption at the end of the story, even though it was edited out, gives us a great sense of realism and validity that his story took place in a real place, real location. Yeah, I mean, one thing I really, really enjoyed with Dracula is that the attention to detail. And this is written by someone that is not from that area originally. But you're reading it and feel like, yeah, he's been here. This is like, you feel very much embedded within the culture and location. And this is before, you know, telephones, like before, like, well, before, but like internet where, or Google Maps and Google Earth. So yeah, yeah. to get the level of information and level of detail is just, you know, amazing. It really is an amazing story, like really rich read. He was, I mean, and, and you can admit this, I'm not going to get my feelings hurt. I feel sometimes there's too much detail. There's, there's sometimes a little too verbose in describing things, or he goes into incredible detail to get the dialects just right from some of the characters, like the, the uh, Captain Donaldson, who was the was the captain of the ship that brought the Count from Whitby back to um, to Varna, and. Um, I, I'm not. I, I'm not. I don't know enough if Donaldson's accent was Yorkshire or what it was, but it was difficult for me, as was Captain Swales, which, which was Yorkshire. So I stumbled over those parts, and I just did. Okay, Dacre, just relax, just read it. But but I'll tell you why he did this. I mean, not only was it a sense of realism, but way back in Bram's early years as a young man graduating from Trinity College, he also worked at the seat of British government in Ireland, Dublin Castle, as a clerk in the Petty Sessions legal department. Oh. And every, everybody rattles that off. Oh yes, he was, a, he was a law clerk. But he was also promoted to be the inspector of all the clerks throughout Ireland. And that meant he had to get on a train, or many trains, and carriages through, for his job to travel through the country to check up on all the different counties to make sure the clerks were, let's just say, consistent <laughs> as as they, you know, doled out the law. And, and how and and back in those days, it wasn't too far removed from the you know the feudal system where anybody could you know give any penalty to anybody. And Bram's job was to codify all of this, so he noticed it didn't work very well. So he spent a year writing a legal manual. And it was published as the duties of clerks of Petty Sessions throughout Ireland, and it was still being used as a legal manual in 1960. Oh, wow. Oh, that's amazing. But go a step further. That, the experiences he had, I'm convinced, Bram used when he modeled and wrote Jonathan Harker. Getting on train, getting on carriage, going into hostile territory. Yeah. Having to having to bring legal work to, to, to be dealt with in people who necessarily don't always want to see you. He had to do the same thing to, to Count Dracula because the reason he went was to consummate these land transactions that needed 
the legal work to make them, you know, finish them up. So I, I think Bram inserts himself that legal mind, that detail-oriented mind of Bram's that you know covers probably fifty percent of his brain, is that guy that makes sure all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. And sometimes it gets a little much, but as Peter, as you said, it gave us tremendous detail about what the people look like, what the carriages look like, what the mountains look like. And I say he was just darn lucky that the five or six different adventurers that went before him came home and wrote books about it. <laughs> um, Charles Bonner, Elizabeth Maciuchelli, Andrew Cross, um, the Baedeker Guide. He had all these guides available to him in the London Library, and he listed them, as I said earlier. Yeah. So he simply read their accounts, and, and he cherry-picked the different things that these people observed and made it sound like he was there, and he did it bloody well. Absolutely. And I think we all our creation, our project, our own backgrounds, I mean, so... Um, Bram's kind of background in legal and also just going out there and traveling. I mean, when you're reading like his adventures, like on the train and then the carriages, yeah, it makes sense. It's very much invested in that time and it really kind of brings it to the fore that you don't get in other stories, really. Yeah, that, that's that's true. It makes you, uh, it puts you there. And, sure. and, and when I, when I read I mean, I've read it so many times, but even the first chapter, he sort of, Parker is like, you know, he's so full of bravado, you know, he's heading off as this young solicitor and I'm going to go look at the London Library to see, uh, or they call it the British Museum Library because the London Library didn't exist at the time. Yeah. But but it was, uh, I'm going to go look at a map. I'm going to get all this, all this preparation. It just, you know, this is going to be wonderful. And then obviously things slowly begin to fall apart when he's, you know, interrupted by, his superstitious things and yeah. and the supernatural, but it it, it was um, Transylvania. From what I understand, the sort of the civilized world back in 1897 sort of ended at Budapest. Mm -hmm. You know, the Hungarians were very advanced in film and everything else, but beyond that, farther east, it was sort of no man's land. Although there was train service and everything else, but Harker mentioned. You know, the trains don't run according to schedule and all these weird things begin to happen. It's sort of like we're going back in time, which you really were. And uh, that's the sense that Bram wanted to, I think, have is that this creature that is represented by myth and superstition and potentially the supernatural is not too far away from our our comfort zone. And sure enough, he can take his trains and his rafts down the river, get on a boat and end up in Whitby and on our doorstep and make everybody in London feel pretty bloody uncomfortable, you know, especially in the wake of the Jap the Ripper murders that happened just a couple of years before Bram wrote the novel. So Bram was really attuned to what's going to make everybody feel unsettled. And, and that's that's the beauty of using Transylvania as the spot. It's far off, but it's not too far off. And it's uh, we know a little bit about it but not enough to really know it well enough to question that, there, hey, there's no way they have vampires there. That question is 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 still possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you really, really bring that kind of sense of otherness in Dracula, and especially like in terms of the mannerisms and also just the descriptions of it. And like, it's just human enough, but also just subtle enough that it could be that 
almost an uncanny uncanny valley that we see with like modern robotics in a sense like it's just that something just feels off and he really kind of embeds that within the story yeah yeah i agree absolutely it, it, it's that unsettled feeling you get as you just you know, want to sit back with a good book but it's just you know it's left you on the edge a little bit a couple of things um I am uh, two things. So I'll, I'll talk about because so I'm looking at your sort of your your, your points. Just some and this is great, by the way. Anybody who comes on our podcast should send us uh, cliff notes of what things <laughs> they can talk about. It's awesome because you can just like flick through them and stuff. Um, but uh, you were talking about obviously um, he takes a lot of influence from his own life and got a point here it says uh bram's eldest brother dr thornley stoker was a medical consultant for the writing of dracula this is why everything medically accurate in the novel so um it, i can't even remember what i was gonna say there so he's going no, I, I, i'm sure it's like why thornley and why again yeah. another sense of realism right yeah, yeah. is is first of all to put things in 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 perspective blood typing hadn't started yet Yet, Thornley was recommending to his brother something that was really new, which was blood transfusions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the blood transfusions between the different male characters trying to keep Lucy alive, that, that was cutting-edge science. And, and then certainly one of the bigger ones was in Chapter 21 when Renfield got beat up by Dracula and got a brain hemorrhage and brain swelling. I found treaties in medical journals that Thornley Stoker had done brain trephination three times on patients. Oh. Twice successful, and once the patient died because of infection. And as you guys know, back in those days, they had nothing to stop infection. Yeah, yeah. Just wash, wash your hands a little bit. So um, chapter 21, in, in Bram's notes in the museum in, in Philadelphia, You've got an actual diagram that Thornley wrote and drew the little circles at the side of the head where Seward and Van Helsing have to make the incisions to get into Renfield's brain to reduce the swelling. And what's even more interesting is one of the patients in the treatise that Thornley did the operation on, in similar fashion to the fictional operation that was done on Renfield, the patient was conscious and talking. Wow. So, wow. Peter, you just read the book. He, he's sitting, he's lying there yeah. you know, with, the, with the blood coming out, and he's talking to the band of, yes, uh, I, I seconded your father at the Wyndham Club and this and that, <laughs> which, is, which is in itself is really eerie, especially for the day. They, do, they still do brain surgery on people, and yeah. they remain conscious. So... That was something Bram did, but let me let me go one step farther, Matt, because since I wrote those notes, I've even found some more interesting stuff about Thornley. And in a subtle way, it's been folded into the persona of Count Dracula. And Peter, you tell me if you picked up on this as an evil scientist, not just a count drinking blood. But there are references that Bram wrote to Count being an evil scientist who's using Renfield in an experimental way to, uh, to get Renfield to be the one to get him to invite Count 
into the asylum so he could get at MENA. And this was a huge issue, is, is unnecessary scientific experimentation. Back in the day, obviously they weren't doing it on humans, but in Bram's, excuse me, Thornley's day, they were doing it on dogs and monkeys. It was called vivisection. And doctors and professors in medical schools in Ireland, in England, would, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out how the brain works so they'd have a monkey, strapped him down in a chair, a operating theater full of the students, and then they'd cut his, cut a hole around his skull, open it up, and start prodding it to see what parts of the monkey would move so they could brain map. This was you know, cutting edge surgery at the time, cutting edge knowledge. But the problem was it was misused at times because doctors, professors were doing it kind of to improve their ratings with their students. Isn't that cool? We're going to see Dr. Stoker today and he's going to do that monkey thing again. So Thornley Stoker, being a man of very high morals, went to the legal body, whichever medical body is supposed to uh, be in charge of this and said, we've got to change this. We've got to set something up a system where the doctors need to apply to get a to get a license to do vivisection and show if it's necessary. So with that knowledge, again, I go through Dracula and do word searching on experiments, and surgery and all this, and there's about five references to Seward talking about, oh, this, because you know, he was the doctor in the insane asylum. I would love to learn more about, about Renfield, love to. But only, you know, I could love to do operations, but only if it's necessary. And here is this evil scientist Dracula doing this. So again, we have, if once you understand Thornley, and he was knighted for being medical contributions and very close to Bram, his hand in writing Dracula is quite heavy when you consider how Bram respected his brother and how he wanted to write the story again so that the issues of the time, not just reverse colonization and women's rights and modern women, but the medical side was very up-to-date and very appropriate. And obviously, so that, that's, that's Thornley, all right. It's very cool. So obviously at that time, obviously you're talking about the realism, making sure people sort of felt like it was, it wasn't just a fiction book. It was, it was possibly real. Um, and at that time, obviously the occult was a big thing. You had, um, you know, you had, you had grave robbers, you had people sort of who um, believed that, you know, people could, could rise from the dead. You had, you had crazy, crazy graves and stuff just to make sure that um, people weren't sort of coming back to life. So that sort of whole thing ties in having the realism through the medical side of things made it sort of that more real for the reader because it sort of tied in with yeah. their experience of real life. Yeah. You, you remember guys, look, we're, we're, we're talking about a time when just as Matt says, even in the dead house, there was laws that people had to be laid out for three days before they could be buried because people were being misdiagnosed and buried prematurely. This is when they started tying the, the, the strings and wires to people with bells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if they woke up and, and also people were putting these sort of cage things over the graves. They had grave watchers because of grave diggers. But it's also a time when 
this whole spiritualist movement was started in America and it came over to England when people started questioning their strict religion. And they were beginning to ask, especially after some, some pretty horrible rounds of contagious diseases would go around, that started this whole vampire scare back in the Middle Ages, and it hit England as well, and America, that, well, if this is God's will of just killing people, you know, willy-nilly, you know, why should we trust God? You know, we, we want to know what's really going on. So the, the answers to some of these things that people wanted to find generally were found in superstition if they weren't being satisfied by their traditional Sunday services at their, at their church. And to make matters more interesting, Bram did find in a newspaper in New York when he was over on one of his trips, an account of vampirism in the New England states in 1896, which was, again, a contemporary account of vampirism while he's writing his story and setting it in 1893. I mean, it couldn't be better, could it? And it was yet, it was described as an outbreak of tuberculosis. So seance, occult, spiritualism, you know, all these tarot card readings, this was the height of it. And Bram capitalized on that, just as you said, Matt, by making it just suggest that this could be real, guys, if they're all still thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And kind of blending the two together and creating no a combination of two and just and an entirely new story in itself, which is just very rich and detailed and just an absolute delight to read. I mean, I mean, looking through the notes you sent us about your depths of research and just like staggering the lunch you've gone to and like finding out all these little bit, bits of information about Bram Stoker and also how you kind of track down. I mean, this is not just like. So it's like you know, tracking down scraps of paper. It feels like a it's, modern, feel like a modern uh, adventure story, like going around the world, like tracking down um, uh, Bram Stoker's history. Well, you're not the first that said that. It was Dacre. You're like a, you know, sort of a, a goth Indiana Jones, you know, looking at <laughs> these pieces. And, and, and I'm, I'm not kidding. It's a little bit like that because I haven't discovered all of these things. And I, and I don't try to take the credit. It's people like Hans de Roos, Christopher Frayling, you know, Elizabeth Miller, uh, uh, Robert 18%. They might have found little pieces, but I seem to be the guy that has stories from my family. Bram does have two great-grandsons still alive, and they have good memories from their grandfather, which is Bram's son, who actually raised these two young lads. And so they still have memories, but they also have things like a journal that I actually published uh, of Bram. So I got to got to understand Bram firsthand through family. And then I'd cross-reference those to all these other things that these other people have brought to Dracula scholars' attention, the Dracula notes and the Rosenbach, the, uh, the typescript sitting in, uh, in Seattle, Washington, uh, going to Transylvania and ver- verifying things, going to Scotland where Bram actually wrote the novel Cruden Bay and walking in the, in the castle that he walked into when it was not a ruin and found this octagonal room that he decided to write into chapter two when Hark arrived and walked into fictional Castle Dracula into octagonal room. So it's putting those things together. It's been like a big treasure hunt or a quest to put these puzzle pieces together. And that's kind of where I am is as I found them, they make the picture clearer. And now I just, it's up to me to share them with others in the hope that 
there might this might stimulate more people to find pieces of puzzles and we'll get a clearer picture. As I said, at the top of the show, Bram didn't write an autobiography. He's a bit of a mystery and we're all out there trying to find more. And as we share these pieces, we're all better off. Yeah, I mean, uh, you mentioned going to Scotland. Have you been to Whitby at all? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Whitby. Oh my gosh. Okay, here's a here's a story, right? Oh, <laughs> I um, love the stories. <laughs> the, the, I've heard about it for years. Obviously, you read Dracula's chapter six, seven, and eight, and you feel it. But I hadn't been there, and I was actually hired by a Canadian company who was filming a documentary called real vampires and they were looking at just as matt said earlier you know looking at the how superstitions rise where did bram get his information what how did whitby speak to bram stoker on his visit there he was only there once we arrived well first of all we all flew in from different places into into london at heathrow um met the next morning so woke up went downstairs and started meeting these people they were obviously looking like film guys you know everybody had only black clothes on <laughs> and the typical sort of you know working crew production company guys and we all figured who each other were and then we loaded into uh, a panel van and headed into london to pick up all these rental pieces of equipment that's what guys do when they make documentaries they they rent the stuff and then we drive six hours to 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 whitby and we arrive late at night and and i said guys i, I it's been so long I, we, you know and we were staying at a at a uh, bed and breakfast quite close to the center of town so it wasn't far to walk down the hill cross the swing bridge i said i've just got to go up to uh, i want to take you to the duke of york pub at the foot of the 199 steps and let's just have a, a little sandwich and a pint and uh, that'll be a great end to the day well, it was one of those days in February where the fog had rolled in. Everything was slick. You know, a town like that with cobblestone streets and not a lot of uh, unnatural light. You had street lights, but with the fog, it was a glow. It was wonderful. I mean, I just felt like somebody was going to jump out and kill, kill you <laughs> everywhere you go. We got to the base of the 199 steps. And there was a, a, a yellow sign, you know, police line, do not cross. And there was a policeman down there with a radio. And it just happened that I had been able to call a friend of mine who, uh, and funnily enough, his name is John Stoko, no relative, but he was <laughs> the head of the Whitby newspaper. And he was going to meet us for, for a drink and he was going to show us around town the next day in filming locations. And of course, these newspaper guys, they have scanners, they know what's going on. And he said, oh, Dacre, it's really sad. And I go to, he said, they've, they've closed the steps. I said, oh, because they're slippery? He goes, no, they, they just had somebody commit suicide. Somebody jumped over the cliff. Ooh. Which apparently happens from time to time. You know, it's, you, you know what that's like. It's right that the graveyard is right at the edge. Somebody you know, had had enough and did themselves in. And immediately our, the whole group was like this somber feeling, like, oh my God, this is reality after all. Because I'd been talking on the, on the, on the van ride that Bram Stoker discovered something very strange in Whitby. Because it's a, 
a sailing and, and a shipping town, the graveyard is full of headstones with names on them of people who are not in the grave. So they, they had died in Greenland, they had died in Finland, they died somewhere, whaling or something else. So the family puts up a headstone and there's a spot in the ground. And I, and I said, you know, to John, I said, what is that? He said, because one day they hope their soul will come back and rest at peace. He said, that's the fog. That's the, that's the myth of the fog. The souls of the dead is, the, is these wispy ghost-like apparitions that come out with fog. And they're looking for their pace to settle. So I had the whole film crew on edge. Say, Come on, let's go up to the graveyard. We're going to see these homes of the, of, of the dead people waiting to find. And, and my God, it's misty. This is really cool. And Bram also pointed out a suicide victim in the novel. And the suicide victim had a story. Now, this was made up. This was not in real life. It was made up. But when Lucy and Mina are sitting on their bench and they're chatting with swales, He's talking about the suicide victim and how his soul is conflicted and how he couldn't be buried in a consecrated grave. And so the theory is that when Dracula jumps off the ship as the dog up the steps goes into the St. Mary's churchyard, he, he can find these empty graves or the suicide grave to go into because it's unconsecrated. So that's ah. that was my first... And I've been to Whitby 10 times since. It's never been as spooky, though, Peter, as that. And it was genuine spooky. It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at night, Whitby is incredibly atmospheric. I've been there a few times. I live about um, 60, 70 miles away from us. And like, we've holidayed there a few times, my wife and I, with the children. And yeah, you know, during the day, it's a perfectly fine English seaside um, town. But at night, as you say, the buildings, the irregular lighting because it's like it's not straight it's very kind of winding roads and yeah it's really chilly is best we can put it and yeah it's a brilliant place to explore and if anyone ever gets the chance to go to Whitby do so you you need to and I'll tell you one thing I'm on a quest to do um because it, it's so cool but there is no marker that is sort of uh, telling the general public, what Bram Stoker did here. There is a little uh, plaque on one bench that is that is over, you know, it's on, on the side of the river next to the Royal Hotel looking up at Whitby Abbey. But I've done this in, in Cruden Bay, so I put my money where my mouth is. I want to, and I'll pay for it, I just need the permission, to have a plaque of some sort, and they've got them near the whale bones, you know, for Captain Cook that say, yes. Bram Stoker was here in this year, he used these locations and you have a little map and you can have little red dots. You know, he mentioned the Salvation Army Bandstand. He mentioned this place. He mentioned this place. He stayed at Royal Crescent, number six, Mrs. Vesey's guest that he stayed here, did this. And you could do a little Q code like we did and, and, and direct people to a website with more information. Um, there is a great guy, Dr. Uh, Dr. Crank, Carl, um, Carl, come on forget his last name now, who gives really cool tours um, and, and does that. But if Carl's not around, you yeah. got you, you could do a self-paced tour if it was something you could look on your phone. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, one thing I love doing, and the one is incredibly nerdy here, so I apologise, is I like reading a book and following it, the route Yeah, it lays out. I mean, not all books do that. Um, <clears throat> Brian Lumley's Next Group does that. It's, it's based in the northeast where I'm from, so I kind of spent one summer kind of tracing the, the events in, in Necroscope. But also, as you say, um, Bram Stoker does that with Dracula. You, you can literally follow the route of Jonathan Harker. There's sufficient information there that you can read. And also, it's, I enjoy just walking around Whitby and like, ah, and kind of connecting the dots. Yeah. I'll tell you one other thing he did, which was a, 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 um, a tendency that has now proven itself out in a couple of places. He got to Whitby a week before his wife and son did. And that's, you know, he didn't have many holidays, but he would usually have a month off in the summer when the Lyceum was shut down. And he would get there and he would wander the streets to sort of soak in the atmosphere. But he was also the kind of guy that would go and chat up people in the Coast Guard, in the rescue crew, the rocket crew, uh, bartenders, you know, these kind of guys. Because back in the day, you know, they didn't have Google to go look for good story ideas, yeah. right? They didn't have the evening news. They'd have the odd newspaper. But the guys that had the best stories that Bram could capitalize on in his writing was the Coast Guard and the rescue crew. And he found a guy called William Petternick from Devon, who was, was posted in Whitby in the Coast Guard. And Petternick, I don't know how Bram got him to do it, but pulled a page out of the booklet called you know, the, the Details of Rex at Whitby. Oh, and he pulled a page out and it's in Bram's notes and it's not Bram's handwriting. It's definitely not Bram's. And it detailed a series of wrecks of ships in 1893. And sure enough, one of them was a Russian schooner from Varna named the Dimitri oh. carrying a cargo of silver sand. Bram simply took that, changed it to the Demeter did his research in the library in Whitby, found and conferred with Petherneck about storm patterns. Where's the wind come from? What happens to, you know, ships that do this? Where's the, the as, as Peter, you know, as the, the, the rock reef off of Whitby is very yeah. treacherous and they've got searchlights. So. so again, Bram was searching for realism, but something that was sort of hyper real that would be able to be um, the type of storm that a supernatural creature could control. And obviously that's what Dracula did. He controlled the weather, he controlled the fog bank that would conceal the, the Demeter and get him into, under very strange con conditions, full sail in a big storm, the Dimitri into the uh, Whitby Harbor, protected by the big piers and ran up on Tate Hill Sands as that ship really did. And as there was a, an image in the Whitby newspaper by Frank Sutcliffe, this picture of uh, the, the wrecked uh, Dimitri. Yeah, like I said, there's so much information. Also, also I think getting, as you said, alluded to, there's also a lot of background material that we just don't see. I mean, it adds depth to a story that you don't normally get in stories from that time, which feels feels much much greater depth and um, background that is alluded to, hinted to, and gives dimension to the stories. But 
it just it's there it's present but you don't read it yeah and you don't almost you don't need to read it because through inference you get an understanding of it yeah yeah so i, I know guys we've talked for almost an hour on dracula and we've got about half an hour left matt yeah i know we had other things you wanted to chat about um is there anything left on dracula i mean we're going to keep coming back to it but is there anything specific on dracula or do you want to sort of move no, into some no, other cool stuff no 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 i i to be honest i i could probably talk about this forever i'm, I'm just engrossed in all the stories and stuff so you know for me personally because i i um i did a degree in military history um history is always a big a big thing for me and sort of the um the origins of uh dracula from uh vlad tepish um in uh wallachia um and how so he's got this he's gone to whitby and he's found some books on vlad tepish and that's why do you think he picked him as uh as the sort of avatar for for this for this creature well, I, I'm so glad you, you, you asked that. That wasn't a plant, but it was it was good because this is one of these highly controversial topics. And if you go on to uh, Facebook, you'll see there's probably 20 pages that has something to do with Transylvania, Romania, Vlad Dracula, you know, any of the Dracula movies. And everybody seems to argue, especially people from Eastern Europe, by going, you know, Bram Stoker knew nothing about Vlad Dracula, and he was not a, a vampire and all this. And and so I usually do not engage, because as you know, you, you can't really engage and argue properly on social media. But here here is the facts as I know it, and, and I feel I'm pretty I'm pretty well versed on it by now. Because in the Whitby Library, he was he was fortunate that that there was a book by William Wilkinson, which was a, a British envoy to the area and wrote a book called The Accounts of Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia. And it was just you know, a fairly new book. And it had an entry in it about Dracula and the history and what he did with his fighting, of, uh, fighting against the Turks. So he represented Dracula well there. But most importantly, he said, and this is what Bram copied into his notes, that Dracula in the Wallachian language means devil. And it was used for people who exhibited cruel action or cunning. And I believe, even though we know now, it also means dragon and then order of the dragon, but that's not what Wilkinson wrote and that's not what Wilkinson knew. So that's not what Bram Stoker saw in that particular book. So he saw devil, he saw cruel action, he saw cunning, he saw the dates. He saw that he was fighting the Ottomans. And two months earlier, he had dinner in the beefsteak room at the Lyceum Theater. And lucky enough, Bram had recorded who was sitting at the table, because that's Bram's job for Irving, was making the seating arrangement cards. And he actually mentioned, and he put the little circles in the names, that there was a guy called Arminius Fanbury at that dinner table. Arminius is mentioned twice in the novel Dracula as the person that gave Van Helsing information on who this this Vlad Dracula was. Uh. Bingo. So you've got Arminius saying things, Bram had known him. Two months later, he's in Whitby and he looks up a book called The Accounts of Principalities of Wallachia, Moldavia, and he finds Dracula means devil. Boom. He's now had Henry Irving in his mind playing 
the, the, the sort of the assistant to the devil Mephistopheles. He's thinking the occult. He's thinking a devil-like creature. And now he's got his man, a real man in history, that's referred to as the devil. A great backstory, plus the fact that he's been dead a couple hundred years, and he brings him back to life as a vampire. And then, within a few months, Bram is back home in London working, and he goes into the London Library, and there's a book by a very reputable lawyer called James Samuelson, who he himself is one of these adventurers who have gone to Transylvania and wrote a book called Transylvania Past and Present. And he's got two pages of things that mentioned Vlad Dracula being a devil and also the, the stories that we all know about Vlad, like when he met the visiting envoys from Turkey and they wouldn't take their turbans off in front of him, so he nailed them on their head and he did the night attacks and all these other highly, you know, highly atrocious things to his own people if they didn't follow his rule or to his enemies. So this, let's call it, Matt, a merger of finding the backstory of a real person with exactly the right name that Bram Stoker needed to represent the occult, the devil, it all came together there. But it wasn't just, you know, here's almost like a typical writer or a journalist. It wasn't just one source, it was three. Banbury, the Whitby Library, Samuelson, the London Library, bingo, now you got your guy, and, and the rest is history, and everybody whines about it, thinking Bram Stoker turned Vlad Dracula into a vampire, when in fact, he, he took the name and his background, and really, honestly, I'm not ashamed of it, but many people have done a better job in recently in novels and in movies, really connecting Vlad Dracula to say, well, this is how he turned into a vampire. Yeah. Bram only alluded to it because of Emily Gerard. Yeah, he, um, like we, we have a, uh, a Romanian um, writer who sort of kind of helps us out now and again. And I think she did a, she did a piece because I asked her because, you know, she started, she's Romanian. I was like, so do you want to do a piece on Vlad Tepes? Because the Romanian people, for him, for them, he's a bit of a hero because he obviously held up Mehmet II and um, yeah. the Ottomans and sort of he, he basically ran a guerrilla war against them and uh, he, he won some, some, some good battles and stuff. Oh, inevitably, he, you know, he lost because he was sort of uh, his brother, I think his brother. Um, yeah. Right. And then obviously with his brother, the suicide of his wife, it's his, it's his first wife who got who uh, died. Not his, his second wife, I think, is the one he uses in the book, but it's his first wife is the one who actually suicide, who committed suicide, um, though we don't know what her name is. Um, um, but anyway, that, I'm sort of kind of going off the point. But they sort of kind of see him as a bit of a folk hero. Um, yeah. But they sort yeah. of, as is the case when you've got sort of national pride and stuff, and no offense to any of our Romanian sort of listeners and, and to Christina as well, <laughs> he'll murder me. Um, he, he wasn't, I, I think people argue that for the, for the time, he was as brutal as the time, but I think he maybe sort of pushed the boundaries somewhat when it came <laughs> to brutality. Um, yeah. Yeah, with the just a bit, that just a bit. Yeah, with you know, the the, the Ottomans weren't sort of known for sort of being great. Human rights. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, the his the 
I've, and I've read a few books and I've seen some documentaries and stuff and the, 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 how he impaled people um, and he did it in a way that they could keep them alive. So it was literally up the bum through and they passed through different organs and then they would come out the chest. Um, so they could they would miss, he, they had it to a certain way so they could pe- keep people alive um, for longer. And the you know there's that story that he used to dine amongst the impaled bodies of his enemies and the whole drinking of the blood thing came from because he allegedly dipped his blood his bread in the bloods of, of of his victims um but he he was a as much as he may have been a hero to the people because obviously um being the what's the word being the um, oh, it's not a servant. Defender the realm. Yeah, well, he sort because of, they were they were a vassal of they were a vassal. Valaki yeah. was a, a vassal of the Ottoman Empire, and they were sort of kind of trying to sort of the Hungary. It was basically Hungary, the Ottomans, and Valaki and Moldova. Just sort of kind of in between, and he was basically sort of uh, a part of the. He was a part of the the Ottoman court. Um, him and his brother were hostages of the ottomans i think hostages yeah, of the ottomans it's yeah, young boys yeah it's yeah, young boys now th- allegedly now the the he, he was he was probably sexually abused by his captors or sort of like as much as he was a part of the court he was probably sexually abused and the whole impaling thing has sort of ste- potentially stemmed from that yeah. abuse um and he's sort of taken that and then he's sort of you just ran with it. Uh, there's obviously other underlying sort of things that have to go on if you're going to do stuff like that. But he, 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 you know, there was, I think one of the times, I can't remember the name, uh, but he basically, Ottoman uh, army comes in and he, he basically took out an entire village and he impaled them all just basically to show the Ottomans that I'll do this to my own people. What am yeah, I going to yeah. do? What am I going to do to you? And um, I think, you know, that justifies the devil's part of him, you know, as much as, you know, he, he, he staved off Ottoman rule for a bit before, you know, his brother took over and they, you know, they were vassaled again. Um, he, he was a brutal, <laughs> he was a brutal warlord. He did a lot of very, very brutal things. Um, and so the whole defense of him don't you don't understand him it's like yeah fine he may not have literally just drank the blood in fact i think dracula is maybe a bit more civilized than (laughs) he's probably a bit more civilized a bit more romantic than probably vad tepish was again christina's probably going to murder me for this but from my understanding of history and you know he was a um he wasn't a man of his time he was a man (laughs) of his time plus plus 10 he was uh you know i understand where he where the where the link comes from and how the how they've tied it in um because he did a lot of fucked up stuff you know it, it's just it's mad like Shut watch up. watch and there's actually there's a it's not it's not the most historically accurate thing but there's there's um a series on netflix called the ottomans and it's about mehmet the second and his oh, con- yeah. conquest yeah. of constantinople um and then obviously there's the second one which ties in with um uh, vlad tepes and his sort of it, it sort of it it doesn't take in to some of the more the more 
um, the stellar chat. <laughs> well, no, sorry, it, it, it shows him as as being brutal. Uh, it shows yeah. him as being brutal, but it doesn't sort of. I don't think it sort of makes out like him and Mehmet were the were best mates when they were sort of kind uh, of kids and stuff, and that uh, you know there was no sexual abuse and there was no all this other stuff, and uh, it it just sort of says he just wanted to run the lake as as the sort of voivod. Is it voivod? I think that's what they call the yeah, sort of the void, void, yeah, void, yeah. Um and um. Yeah, it, it 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 sort of glosses over things slightly, um, but it's it's quite an interesting watch. It's quite you know dramatically, it's quite good. But anyway, that's sort of beside the points. But it's just like I, you can you can see where he's he's stitched. You know, you're saying he he wants reality. He wants he he's done research on this person. He's done research yeah. on all he's parts suitable. Of it. Yeah, and yeah. he is he is definitely suitable. And because he's he's Eastern. And it's a very sort of like it's an unknown area, and there's a lot there's a lot of mythology behind this, and there's a lot of sort of you know this sort of dark place where people like this exist, sort of kind of will t- titillate the sort of kind of uh, Victorian um, uh, the Victorian yeah. era. Yeah, it's the ages of civilization. So yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so I, I, I see the sort of where it's tied in, but I understand why, why there's a lot of because it's it's, it's the same with every one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, and it's just sort of like you get that it, yeah. sort of thing that especially when it comes to nationalism, which sort of, uh, can be slightly blinkered when it comes to the the sort of black and white nature of history, um, it sort of you can see why you get people who get very sort of tetchy about it because they're like, well, no, because he's a hero and stuff like, yeah, but he was a bit of a shitbag, wasn't he? So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like William Wallace in Scotland and stuff. There's like, freedom. It's like, yeah, you know, bit, you know, not, as, not, the, not sort of the guy who's sort of portrayed in the film, to be fair, but, you know, it's just, you know, it's good to think of him that way. I mean, one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, Dacre, was what drew you to first kind of researching Bram Stoker and like, investing so much of your time and um traveling so much to kind of look into your ancestor well there, there was originally there's a fascination with who my great-grandfather was bram's youngest brother had a son and that son was my great-grandfather and, and trying to understand because obviously i never met him never met my grandfather and it was trying to understand who he was and, and then you know it sort of stemmed from there you know, Bram was, was one of seven kids, and only three had offspring. Bram and one other, Tom. Uh, Tom's line died out. Bram's line has not died out, luckily, but, but the name Stoker has in that one. And then the youngest brother, George, um, my great-grandfather had a son, Thomas, and he came to Canada, and that's how we started. It was just trying to get, understand him. And then I had this, this uncle in Montreal where I was born and raised, and he was the eldest of my father's brothers, and, and all my dad died, and his other brother died. Patrick was like, Dacre, you seem to be the only one that really is interested in this. Um, why don't you come up? I was living in South Carolina at the time. My wife and I flew up and went to visit him. He said, I want to tell you a lot of interesting things. Uh, and then he led on to us that he was diagnosed with a congestive heart failure, and he had a, you know, a year or two to live. He says, I, I want to make sure that somebody else in the family knows you know, the things that I know, um, you know, make sure you bring your computer and a scanner and so on. So I brought a laptop, a little small scanner, and he let us loose in his storage facility. And I couldn't believe what he had, which is, you know, trunks of things being the eldest things that were sent. 
from other you know, other family members that didn't have siblings that Uncle Patrick became the repository. So I found all kinds of cool letters, you know, between you know Ellen Terry and Bram and George and Hall Kane, these other writers and you know f famous people that were connected to the family. And I just you know got well versed and and I read the book I think that both of you guys were referring to. Uh, or at least Matt was about the blood drinking by by uh, McNally and Florescu, who were the guys that first pointed out about this this German poem uh, by Michael Beheim, saying it was describing Vlad as a bloodthirsty guy, but also blood drinker because he took his bread and dipped it in the the bowl of the blood of his enemies that were streaming down these impaled bodies all around him. Um, and I read that and I, I thought this is pretty cool. What what did Bram know? And just you know, one thing became another. And, and and that was a, a base of knowledge when I was in university, but it wasn't until you know, about 20 years ago when Ian Holt contacted me and said, look, I've got a screenplay. I'd like to turn it into a book. It hasn't gone anywhere. And it was essentially a continuation of the 92 Coppola film, really is what oh. it was. Um, and, and he just loved that film and it just, uh, ah, it's great, but nobody wants it. It, it wasn't a great screenplay. But we, we, we had an editor, we turned it into a story, and he wanted to have a Stoker in, he wanted Bram Stoker in the novel. And so he came to a Stoker and said, what do you know about Bram? And I said, well, look, I don't know that much right now. I'd be interested. I've just, I've got another year contract in my teaching job. Give me a year to get up to speed. You know, are you in any rush? No. And I did. And so when my, that teaching job was over and I said, I'm ready to try something, I had a part-time job waiting, which gave me time to really delve into. And that's when I started going to these conferences, into these museums and, and starting, as, as Peter, as you said, going around and looking for stuff. Some things you can get right up right at your desk from Google search engines. Other times you've got to go and actually see because not everything is digitized and it still is not. But that that was the impetus was putting my name, potentially putting my name on a book and wanting to represent myself and my family properly to give a proper account of Bram Stoker and, and what, what he was and who he was. So what, 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 were you what did you teach before you, you started this all? I, I taught physical education and science. Okay. So in the classroom and also in, in the gymnasium and outdoors. Because also you were uh, you also Olympic athlete as well, weren't you? I did. I, I what really got me into this field was I, I was fairly successful in the sport of modern pentathlon for Canada. I qualified and, and participated in world championships. I qualified for the Olympic Games in 1980, but of course those were boycotted because they were in Moscow. Right. Uh, so not many Westerners went. And, and then I got my first job as a, as a teacher. So I realized I, I couldn't train enough, and I decided to morph into becoming a coach. I coached the Canadian ladies team for four world championships, and then I got the job to coach the men's team at the Olympics in 1988. So I had a, I had a nice 12 year run personally, and then as a coach, and I saw a lot of great people and places and you know high intensity stuff. Um, but I've sort of now taken all that energy and thrown it into into Bram Stoker and Dracula studies. That's a big swing, isn't it? That's yeah. a big swing. Well, it, it is, but you know, when you really think about this for a second, the the sort of determination, the background research, the sticking with stuff, not worrying what people say about you, there's a lot of parallels to training for sport and toiling in the background, you know, early morning in the in the pool or running or this or that 
to doing similar research without the spotlight on you and, and writing things and getting it turned down and editors throwing it back at you and say, fix it. Or when you get your first book comes out and, you know, not all the reviews are wonderful. So it, it gives you a thick skin in sport. And you certainly need that mm. in the world when you're delving into something like Bram Stoker and literature and popular culture, because a lot of people have very strong opinions. And, and, you know, for me to walk in, you know, I'm not going to come in and say, I am Dacre Stoker. You have to believe everything I say. It's, that's got to happen because I've got to build my reputation and I've got to prove things slowly with, with stories and articles and books and lectures and build up credibility until you're looked at as, as an athlete would as somebody a force to reckon with. So there are similarities. Yeah. True. Very true. Yeah. I mean, don't also mean you've gone from like um, competing, coaching, teaching and researching. And there's like you can see the progression there. Like the skills are interchangeable from one to the other, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, what have you been meaning to ask you? What was Bram Stoker like as a person? Ah, now that we could, I mean, that's that's the big question. And that's what, as a teacher and a coach, my mindset, and I was wired from the beginning to want to answer that question here. What was he like? We know what he did. We know what yeah. he wrote. But you've got to read those things, and you've got to, not only read the read obituaries, read what other people said about him, read all the biographies, and then come up with your own opinion. But the piece of gold that I found that really helped me was when I discovered in the Isle of Wight, one of his great grandsons actually had a journal that Bram had and wrote and kept up to date. It wasn't a daily diary. It was a journal of thoughts, stories, poetry, ideas that he had while he was still a student at Trinity. And while he was flexing his muscles, his creative muscles, becoming a writer, and then when he first started working in Dublin Castle, and then so it was an 11-year period that this journal was kept. Oh, wow. That was the final piece that gave me information about what Bram was like. And then every time I found something, like a letter that's uh, on an online auction, if I don't, sometimes I buy them, if I can afford them, sometimes I just screenshot and read them and try to figure out things. That helped me understand that Bram Stoker was the kind of guy that was very interested in the world around him. He was, he was not only interested, but he was willing to do something about it from a young age. At Trinity, he was a, an athlete first. After, after recovering from a mysterious, debilitating illness for the first seven years of his life, hmm. He recovered to become a champion athlete in his own right. Wow. And I think with that, that gave him credible confidence that, that you wouldn't normally get from somebody who was bedridden for seven years. You know, he's got to do a lot of catching up during those awkward, uh, you know, pubescent time for a young man who grew to be six foot two. So he would have been gangly, he would have been awkward and probably introverted a little bit until his success on the sports fields and many of them, rowing, rugby, gymnastics, race walking, morphed over to him in the Philosophical Society, the Historical Society, drama, debating. He really got into the, the scene of Trinity, and he excelled. He was a man's man, but he was also a committee man, as they say. You know, if he didn't like something, he wouldn't just complain. He would get down and do it. He was also an artist. He was, a, he was an amateur sketcher, but he loved it so much, he was one of the founding members of the Dublin Painting and Sketching Club. 
So again, he was a doer kind of guy. And when he got his job in Dublin Castle, which he did because his father retired and he needed to work to provide income for the family, his passion was the theater. So he was a bit of a dreamer as well. But again, part of that side was that detail-oriented side of his mind that made the, the first manual for the clerks. But he was, I could see he was writing poetry. He was a bit of a romantic. He won, he won some awards for, for, uh, for art. And that's what kind of got him into the art world. And in his notes for Dracula, he actually drew sketches of Whitby and Whitby Harbor and Tate, Tate Hill Sands so he could recreate what the thing looked like when he started writing his book years later. And um, he was also very dutiful. You know, he, he was a second man behind Henry Irving for 27 years and never once yeah. tried to get the spotlight. But he benefited greatly by being Henry Irving's kind of secondhand man. But both of them realized that they both were going to have to work very hard and make massive changes in the way the theater operated to, to sort of fulfill their, their goals. And the goal was fulfilled. The Lyceum Theater was very, uh, for most of the time, it was, it was very profitable. And Henry Irving was the first actor ever knighted. Near the end of, of Bram's 27 years, with about four years to go, Irving started to lose it a little bit. He had some injuries. He had emphysema. He started entrusting other people who were yes-man to him rather than Bram Stoker said, no, Henry, you shouldn't do that. And he did weird things without Bram's approval. He, he reduced the amount of insurance on the sets. There was a fire. They lost a lot of money. He ended up having to sell the Lyceum Theater to a consortium. It fell apart. And, and this was sadly, as Bram writes, he, Bram felt responsible for that, although it wasn't. It was Irving going around the bend, and Bram still tried, but he was pushed away. So the type of person Bram was, I sort of sum it up in, in, in a way, a more modern statement is, you know, when you get onto an airplane, there are passengers and there are crew members. Bram Stoker would be a crew member, a voluntary crew member, to make things better for everybody. That's the kind of guy he was. Someone who got involved and helped out for the betterment of everybody else. Yeah, and I'm sure in a way, as I do when I do things like that, you know, as a teacher, a coach, you feel better because of that. So it's yeah. not totally unselfish, but that's, that's the MO, is to help the world be a better place. His writing... I think was his way to satisfy his own ego a bit, to satisfy anybody like what I have to say. You know, he helped Irving get 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 all the stars and everything else. But I think that writing was his quiet way. And in a sad way, he never experienced the success of Dracula while he was still alive. I mean, it didn't even hit the stage until 10 years after he died. Oh, wow. And that's what his wife, his widow managed with Hamilton Dean and later with John Balderston to turn it into a stage play in, in England and America. And then, you know, Lugosi is created and then they sell the rights to Universal. And then it becomes a, you know, then the book sales go up as well. So it's sort of sad as I do this. I feel that maybe Bram's up there somewhere looking down, not just at my efforts, but just the way his magnum opus has sort of taken the world and inspired thousands and thousands of people in many different areas in popular culture to sort of embrace this sort of Dracula creature that he created. Yeah, because it's amazing, like, you know, the level of, you know, 
how Dracula has become such a part of our society. We've got like the the films, you've got the Dracula experience in Whitby and the Whitby Vampire Weekend. We've got, and also it's coming up as well, we've got the Stokerverse role-playing game and the war game as well. And just, yeah, it's really feels kind of, Dracula's always been a part of our, like, you know, literary culture, but now it's become like, a much grander part of it and really coming to the fore, which is great. And, 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 and as you say, um, you, you touched on it, so I'm going to just run with this a bit. It's It's morphed in so many ways, which yeah. is wonderful. You know, you, we don't want the same old Dracula, but it really has changed. And one thing Chris McCauley and I are trying to do in the Stokerverse is to reintroduce in modern form, as you say, the RPG game, tabletop games. We've got a little, uh, you know, uh, one of these um, retro little hand unit games in, in works, um, graphic novels, is bringing Bram Stoker's Dracula back. That sort of, Drac is back in black, you know, all in black, no, no, no little medallion around his neck, that sort of thing. Not yeah. the sexy Eastern European guy, but the real horrific monster that Bram created. Let's 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 take a look at him again. You know, it's been 126 years now and uh, he's changed a lot. Let's bring him back and let's play with him a little bit and see how he adapts to the modern world and all these cool things that we can uh, apply him to. So I obviously so that sort of ties in the segue into the sort of kind of the RPG world. You said before we started that, you know, um, you, you're not a war gamer. You're not into sort of, you've, you've not done this thing. So when somebody came to you and went, so we're, uh, we're going to do an RPG. Um, we're going to do it, a, you know, about Dracula and the Stokerverse. Was it something you were aware of? Or you, did you know what Dungeons and Dragons were? Did you know what RPGs were? Did Yeah. Like I, I got a lot of, fan conventions and I'm in sort of the, the author's alley or the artist alley area. But my God, I walk past where all the gamers are and I see these guys up all night long in these rooms playing these incredible games that they're either on consoles or they're doing board games or doing D and D I get it. I, I just, you know, I've never embraced it enough to do it because I've been, you know, too active in other areas. And I also realized, my God, that's a, there's a lot of time involved. So I did have to say, okay, guys, just, you know, what would he really want? And luckily, Chris McCauley understands these things. And so he said, Dacre, they, they need a story, something that, is, that, that they can use in this game that is not, you know, exactly in the book, but something that we could, we could, we, we could use from the book. For, for instance, in Dracula, there's no um, – explanation of how Jonathan Harker really escapes from the castle. Is there, Peter? No. All right. There's no sort of great um, description of what happens to Mina Harker, how she gets to find Jonathan in Budapest when he's in the, in, in, in the convent. So there are things left out, especially the, the, the uh, edited ending, as I said earlier. So it's like, well, let's utilize and exploit some of those. Let's tell that story in the same vein that Brand did with the same characters and the same characterization and give that to the guys making the RPG and let them run with that. And then having the notes at my disposal, we could also create and, and bring back to life characters that Bram was thinking of. For instance, Detective Cotford. That's yeah. one that Ian Holt and I use. Bram actually planned to have a de detective in the story. And 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 he and, and being a legal guy, uh, you know, legal yeah, of course, 
it would make sense, but he decided not to. So, of course, I brought Detective Comfort back. And then he also was thinking of a psychic research agent, Alfred Singleton, because, you know, back back in the day, you know, there's all this whole the whole psychic thing. Yeah. So what I've done is gone through the notes and extracted these characters that were in Bram's world. And Chris and I have brought them back to life and say, OK, let's put them in Nightfall's RPG. Let's put them in this and they can connect. Maybe they can help Jonathan get out of the castle and get him back. And maybe they can help Mina go here. So we, we, we certainly take advantage of Dracula as a framework and we go with in, in certain different directions. So we're, okay. we're fairly true to the Dracula that Bram has created. But we take liberties and introduce new concepts, new things. So it's just not people want to say, oh, that's just a rehash of the Dracula novel. Yeah, but so basically taking like, you know, Dracula as a foundation and expanded upon it, looked at what's like you know, the great areas, what hasn't been expanded, but and just extrapolated from what yeah. was already there. Yeah. And, and look, we're not the first ones. I'm thrilled to death. You yeah. guys are probably aware that we're about to see fairly soon um, a, a film or a series on the voyage of the Demeter. Yes, yes. You, you know, to, that, that's a that's a, a piece of the novel that you know di- didn't get edited out, just never got written. To me, that's brilliant because there was obviously a period of time like the BBC did this, the Netflix co-production. That was a really cool episode on the Demeter. And I'm looking forward to that. So there's there's lots of openings in Dracula that can be better exploited by creative people like myself, Macaulay and others that can keep him alive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I said it take like, well, 90 minutes and we're coming up to the end of that. Where do we go from here? Where do you go from here? What have you got planned for next? Well, here, here's something that's very cool, and I'm hoping it's going to be launched in Whitby. I'm, I'm actually, every day now, we're chatting with the folks. Uh, of course, the, the uh, anniversary, Dra- World Dracula Day is May 26th, the, the, the anniversary of Dracula's published. It'll be 126 this year. I'm working on an NFT Dracula. All right, okay. <laughs> which will be an electronic version of Dracula with over a hundred video commentary almost exactly as I'm chatting with you guys. So as you read this electronic Dracula, you will click on things that have me pop in and say, ah, you realize there was an edited ending, why this happened. And this. So there's a hundred of those. We've also made an, an arrangement with the Lyceum, excuse me, with the Rosenbach Museum, who are allowing us to, to use images of the Dracula notes that sort of connect the dots or pieces of the puzzle to kind of bring it all together. And uh, that's being done by Book Vaults, which is a UK uh, publisher. And uh, that's going to drop May 26th. So that I'm, I'm fast and furiously working on that. And I'm also work, working with a, a, a film documentary filmmaker in, uh, in Dublin. I can't say much more, but it is a, um, a documentary about Bram Stoker and his research and writing of Dracula. And I'm finishing off now with a co-author, Dr. Leverett Butts, the story of Bram Stoker writing Dracula while he's on a holiday in Cruden Bay, Scotland. One of the one of the summers he's there and all the strange and interesting things, both fact and fictional, just like Bram does, blurring the edges of fact and fiction um, to, to, to give the readers sort of uh, what I call Bram Stoker's descent into madness while he almost loses it. Uh, because he puts so much into the writing and research of this book that, as you said at the top of the show, Matt, could very well be real. 
And if it is, what is it like for Brand to try to explain that and write it while keeping him and his family safe? That's not a powerful story. Well, uh, yeah. I I feel like I feel I've just found myself just sitting there listening. I'm meant to be sort of asking loads of questions, but I'm just like going. I just like I sort of kind of was zoning out because I was just like, there's so many good stories here. I feel like we could carry on for a very long time, but we don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, obviously you've got Sci-Fi Weekender uh, coming up, so people in the UK you're you're there might actually be, could be, could meet you. Um, is there um have you got anything sort of being released um, currently that you need to talk about? Well, the, I mean, the latest one, you guys know a little something about this, don't you? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, Dracula yeah. the Undead, our, our uh, first in the series of graphic novels from, uh, from Scratch Comics that, um, you, you know, tells the story of Dracula Returns. And uh, he, as I said early in the show, he didn't get stabbed by a stake. And you'll see why and how we justify him coming back and his revenge. And Chris and I are working on number two. Amazing. So that's coming out. Um, and then the, 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 the thing that just happened um, is this is Dracula annotated for the 125th anniversary. Ooh. Now, that book is on Amazon. Everything that I told you guys about the Dracula typescript, every single piece of the Dracula typescript is represented in this book that has been extracted. Instead of crossing it out, we simply underlined it. So you would read Dracula as Bram planned it without the things taken out, but you'd also see the three chapters that were taken out in the 100, 102 missing pages. We've Ooh. recreated those, Robert Bassang and I've recreated them. The strange, oh, wow. thing, strange things to really end your show with a horrible story. We worked two and a half years on this. We've, re, we, we've reconstructed the book, right? And that's, the, and, and that's in print form by Hellbound Press. And then the same book in electronic form in the NFT will be coming out, not with the annotations, but with my, with, with, with my video. Yeah. Three weeks after we finished, my co-author, Robert 18 Basang, one of the foremost experts in the world in, in vampire literature, had a heart attack. Oh. Not a serious one, but he went into the hospital. He phoned me. He said, God, I got pain in my chest uh, going in the hospital. It'll be fine. It's not a big deal. Wife is taking me in. He called me the next day. Yeah, they're going to, they're, they're getting me ready. They're going to put a stint in. I've got all kinds of blood thinners. I feel like crap. And I want to get the hell out of here, you know. Later that day, his wife called me and said that Robert tried to get out of bed with all these, you know, IV and wires on him to go to the loo. And he got tripped up and fell and banged his head. Ooh. And he hasn't regained consciousness. They don't think he's going to make it. Oh. And he died. Oh. He ended up, and his wife was, was pragmatic about it. She says, you know, this is the way Robert had wanted to go. He died as Renfield did, one of his, his famous characters. He died of a brain bleed because he was on blood thinners. Wow. And they couldn't do that. They couldn't do brain trepanation because yeah. he would have bled out. But this is his, his magnum opus was yeah. many years of work. And I'm, I'm really proud that it's, 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 it's out there. Uh, 
Here's here's here is the cover of it. It's a really cool picture. Oh, fantastic! Stoker, and uh, it's got all the bits and pieces that were. It, it's like looking over Bram's shoulder before everything was chopped out of it. So that's the last piece. Is Dracula annotated for the one twenty fifth? All these things are available on my website, bramstoker.com. And if you want to read anything for free of Dracula, Bram Stoker, about Dracula or Bram, bramstoker.org, or follow me on Facebook at Instagram, Dacre Stoker Author. I feel like this is going to spin off to something I'll try <laughs> But it's like, do you think that the additional chapters add to it? Or do, do you think he was right to have to take them out? Or do you feel that, you know, they add more to the story? I think the editor took them out because of length yeah. and and my and it's not that's not original thought when Bram Stoker's widow wrote or published Dracula's Guest and Other Stories she said in the preface this was excised out for length now, I'm not sure yeah. if Bram took it out or his editor I think his editor did right but the first chapter was simply a a, a long series of letters between people in the story so Bram was setting the stage for between correspondence between all the characters, so we the reader would know their backstories. Right. That then we've sense. got then we've got Harker on the way to Dracula's castle, That's has all these misadventures in Munich, and then he does something strange after he recovers somewhat from these misadventures. He goes to the opera in Munich and sees the opera called The Flying Dutchman which, as you guys probably know, is about a cursed ship yeah. that cannot land. And I think it's Bram Stoker is brilliantly foreshadowing the Demeter, the yeah, voice absolutely. of the Demeter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then the character on his way to the train station, he stops in, for whatever reason, at the Munich Deadhouse. And later on in Dracula, he says when he's in the carriage with Mina, and they've gone to Peter Hawkins' funeral. What is edited out was, oh, look at that man. And it was Dracula. He looks like the man amongst the flowers in the Munich Deadhouse. So so what he's referring to is Dracula was actually shadowing him yeah. when he was in Munich to make sure that he got to Transylvania safely. Wow. So does I think, Matt, it adds a lot of the story of course we're used to longer books nowadays or it could still it could be part one part two yeah yeah back in those days paper was very expensive and to have books that were as even as long as dracula was uh was pushing the limits well well <laughs> uh, we'll leave it there then um yeah, i will not subject will not subject you to our uh will not subject you to our pop quiz at the end which we usually do with all our our nerdy guests but uh, <laughs> i feel it might it might it might not work so we'll, we'll leave it there but it's been an absolute pleasure um thank you very much um i, I feel like i could carry on just listen to the stories <laughs> for, for, well, well for... peter and i will be able to do that uh, yeah. at, at at the uh, sfx weekend i think we're going to be on stage together aren't we uh, You're be... yes i will be uh, interviewing yeah. dacre stoker live on stage at sci-fi weekend uh, next month and rick Yarmouth. so yeah if you want to come along and and also dacre stoker will be there for the weekend as well so you catch him afterwards too asking questions that I did forget to ask him, oh. which is quite possible because we've only got an hour to talk to Staker, Daker. And frankly, 
as you've just seen, <laughs> you can talk for a long a time. I feel like you you need to talk with with a few with a few beers, and I think with alcohol that would just make things so much more. It's sci-fi weekend. It, it, it does. That's that's what happened to me on that volcano. That brandy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing! Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, uh, thank you very much. Um, yeah. You would love to have you back on at some point in time. Carry on, carry on the conversation. Sure. If you've sure. got anything more. Uh, that's coming up. But uh, for myself, I've been Matt Geary. With me has been my co-host, Peter Ray Allison. Good night, everyone. And our guest, uh, Deser Stoker. Take care, everyone. Stay, stay, stay safe. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.